So I remind you, church, as the general election approaches, that there's going to be a day of prayer and fasting on Monday, the 7th of November, the day before the general election. We're going to pray and fast that day. And then um, that night we'll come together for a time of church-wide prayers. We seek God's blessings upon our nation as we plead for God to have mercy upon us. That's November the 7th, the day before the general election. So during these days of hurricanes and a general election, there seems to be great anxiety. There seems to be dark forebodings um, that are heightened in our thinking. When the culture is adrift in the area of so many areas, especially we think of the definition of marriage, we think of gender and sexuality. And in the midst of this, a book has been released by a man named Paul Nyquist, who's the president of Moody Bible Institute, entitled Prepare Living Your Faith in an Increasingly Hostile Culture. And I've read excerpts from the book, and this is what he says. He says, the culture war is over, and we lost. Certainly given that gay marriage is now the law of the land and religious freedoms are rapidly eroding, that seems to be the case. I think what is a lot of Christians experiencing a sense of vertigo is how rapidly we have lost this war. He says, if you study the cultural change cycle and how it happens, I believe that we are clearly already past the tipping point and the cultural war is over. And that's his opinion. We are now in the process of rapidly integrating this new cultural value into our society. And unless there is a spiritual revival in the land, these trends are going to only accelerate. And then he says this, buckle your seatbelt, we have only just begun. And, and, and I read that, and I, I think of um, our, our response is to be faithful people of the Lord, is to walk in obedience and leave the results with God. Our, our response is to be men and women of diligent, gracious faith. And just, this is, an, this is a really, a, I'm going to take a side road that has nothing to do with this. But it does. Uh, I've been reading some, a lot of literature lately on leadership and America's leadership and America's presidents. And I've just finished reading some articles and books about Ronald Reagan. And, and I know that some of you, that's ancient history, you know. That's like George Washington or, you know, James Madison. But it wasn't that long ago. And I, just a personal remembrance. I, I remember sitting or being at a meeting now, March the 31st, 1981, Reagan's been president for 69 days, and I'm at a meeting of campus ministers. I'm a campus pastor, and somebody breaks in the meeting and says, the president has just been shot. And we hit the doors and go home, and we'd just gotten a TV after a year and a half of marriage, and it was an old used TV, and we got two stations. Yeah, two stations. I believe that. And so I turned it on, and... Um, as, as the drama unfolded, we thought it wasn't serious, but now we know in retrospect the president almost died. But just a couple of things. I, I remember reading that, that, that when he got to the hospital and the team of surgeons gathered around him and doctors, he looked up and Reagan said in a self-effacing manner, I hope you all are Republicans. <laughs> and there's an anesthesiologist there who was a Democrat who said, this is a great, one of the greatest lines ever. He said, Mr. President, today we are all Republicans. 
And then Nancy's rushed in, and he says a line from W.C. Fields, Honey, I forgot to duck. Just, just you know, and, but he goes to surgery, and we realize now, like I said, he almost died. But what really moved me, I was reading an article, and I didn't read this till lately, that, that, that several days after he had been hospitalized, and he was beyond the time of uh, sliding back into near death, uh, an aide came into his room, and he was on his hands and knees wiping the floor. And he said, Mr. President, what are you doing? He said, I spilt a cup of water, and I didn't want my clumsiness to cause you to work harder than you have to. And I thought, good grief. Yeah. That, that has nothing to do with anything. I just thought that was so neat. <laughs> and see, but see, that, that's leadership. That, that's leadership. So I was thinking about this book and reading excerpts from it. And, and I just, let me just read a few verses to you uh, regarding the people we should be and how we should think and how we should approach this. And as the people of God. And this, this is Matthew chapter 10. I'm going to read this passage and some verses in 1 Peter, and then we'll go to Acts. I'm just going to be... Well. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says this. Verse 28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. That's the Father. Then he says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. So so, so Christ says that the ultimate issue is we walk before God. And then I'm praying through this book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter is written to the church um, that's getting ready to go into a time of uh, 300 years of persecution. And the the theme of 1 Peter really is how to walk through a time of persecution. When you study the history of the church, there, there are times of we, this leveling, and then there's times of descending, and then there's times where God brings His Holy Spirit, and there's revival. So it's not, it's, it's not like that. It's more like like this, and, and, and like this. And, and I, I pray that in my lifetime, I would really see another great awakening like we've had in this country before. And that happens as we are people, in part, who are faithful and we cry out to God. So so Peter's writing to the church that's getting ready to go into a 300-year persecution, almost 300 years, that was relieved only in the year 313 in the Edict of Milan by the Emperor Constantine that said the Christian faith is on equal par with other religions. But, but the persecution for 300 years was, was sometimes not that much, and then it was really strong, and then it was not that, but it was strong. So, so he's writing, I think, to prepare the church. And, and he says this in chapter 1, as, as he writes this, this, this passage, he says, verse 6 and following, he says, And this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the testing of your faith may be shown to be genuine. And is, is more precious than gold that perishes, even though tested by fire. And it may result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation or the second coming of Jesus. And so the, the, the testing of your faith, the, the, the days in a fallen world test your faith. And then he gives several keys to how we are to walk. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 to 23, I'm just going to read these and make a couple of comments. 21 to 23 says, For, for this you've been called... But Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, 
He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So, so in the midst of accusations that were not true, he was the sinless son of God. In the midst of people screaming offenses at him, he kept entrusting himself to God. And Peter says, this is the way we're supposed to live. In, in the midst of this, we're to continually trust ourselves to God. And then in chapter 4, verses 12 and 14, it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed at his second coming. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. You're happy. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And I read that, we understand that, is that, is that when we are put down because of our faith, or in some parts of the world when people are physically persecuted or killed, that there's an anointing and an empowering of the Holy Spirit that allows people to see the glory and the goodness and the power and the majesty of Jesus. And so Peter says, you're blessed. And if we're to go into a time of declension, as far as public approval, we just live with integrity. We don't revile back. We don't curse back. We love. We serve. We care. We give a good report. Verse 19, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while they do good. He says, just do good. And that's that word again, entrust or commit your souls to a faithful creator. That's the way we live. Or chapter 5, verse 1, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. A great day is coming when the Lord will come again and we're going to go to heaven and everything we've ever experienced that's joyful and wonderful and tasteful and filled with light and vibrance and color. Everything is just a foreshadowing of the glory that we will see. And our bodies that are falling apart will be resurrection bodies, gold medal winners at every event. And it's going to be glorious. He says, as, as a fellow elder, I've seen the sufferings, but also he says, I'm going to be a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed. And then verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So, so I, I read those and I say, God, give us the grace to be the people you've called us to be. And then chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, just two more verses from 1 Peter. It talks about the coming glory. Listen, and, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I, I, think, about, I think about a team going from our church this week to Syria to work with refugees. And we know that Christians are being systematically persecuted in that part of the world. And they really understand this. 
And we need to think about it and pray with our brothers and sisters. I think of the privilege that we've had to go to northern Africa on two occasions to work with a missionary family that has a, a, a theological seminary for five different countries. And we have these lectures on systematic theology. And I look at these young men and these young women who are taking notes and who have their laptops open, who are very bright. And they're, they're first-generation believers coming out of a Muslim context. And they're going back to places where we know, and at least in four of the five countries, they could lose their life at any any minute. And I go, wow. And, and so I just say, church, this is what God has called us to be, to be faithful unto the Lord. But see, you know, th- let me tell you the really good news. And this is what is so much fun when you read the Bible. We win. We win. God's kingdom is forever. We, we win. So you say, yeah, yeah, we got some bumps now, maybe, some, but we win. Let me tell you, yesterday, this, I was thinking about this, and this is just fit in. So yesterday, I, I do a wedding at the Citadel. Wonderful couple from our church, godly young couple, and um, it's, a, it's at uh, 4 o'clock. So I get there about 40 minutes early to make sure, tell the bride I'm here, don't panic. Um, where do I stand? What do I do? All that kind of stuff. So um, the Citadel, this year, we're undefeated as of yesterday. So, I mean, it's just, I mean, we're undefeated. I've just... It's just wonderful. You know, it's just fun to win. I tell you that if you're a South Carolina fan, because you need to hear that, okay? <laughs> it's fun to win, all right? So, so, so I'm listening to the Citadel game, and as we pull in, and I get out, and halftime has just start coming. We're, we're behind 10 to nothing, 10 to nothing. And we just haven't done anything. Going on. Wofford historically has just been a burr under our saddle for years. You know, I just don't like Wofford anyway. So we may miss Wofford. So here's Wofford. We're there. We're playing away. And so I go into the wedding. It's there for an hour and a half or so. I come out, turn on the radio. And it's, it's overtime. We've come back, and we're going into overtime. Those of you doing the football, just bear with me because this is such a good illustration. So in overtime, you get the ball, the 25-yard line in college, and you're trying to score a field goal or a touchdown. And so we got the ball first, and, and we, we drove down, couldn't quite get in the end zone, so we kicked a field goal. And we're ahead three points. So Wofford gets the ball. And I'm listening to it. And on the first play from scrimmage, they go 11 yards. And a shoestring tackle saves a touchdown. I'm going, oh, no, 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 no. The second, the second play, there's a fumble. We recover. And it's just like we're, I'm just going crazy. So, so I called my son-in-law who, who played football at the Citadel. And we got the Citadel thing going on. And we talk about it. We were texting each other. And he answers the phone. He says, Buster, what are we going to do? I said, we won. He said, no, no, no. He said, Wofford's getting the ball now. We had to kick a field goal. What are we going to do? I said, Ryan, we won. He said, really? I'm just, I'm watching on TV. And we, Wofford just got the ball. See, there was about a two-minute lag. So, so, so yeah, you, you see what I'm saying? And, and so, and so he's, he's having deep, ulcer catharsis, and I'm just high-fiving and going down the road singing, and I said, I said, Ryan, what's going to happen? The next play, the guy's going to run 10 yards, he's going to fall down, and then he's going to fumble, and we're going to win the game. I said, I'm not, I'm not a prophet. That's really happening, and, and you see, so I, I was just relaxing, and I'm happy, and he's sitting there going, <laughs> don't do that. We win. The Lord God reigns. Nothing happens to us that doesn't come through his nail-scarred hands. I pray for revival. 
And I pray for the prospering of the church. Now, I pray for attorney back of this gender fluidity confusion that is so bizarre. But I pray to be faithful. So church, just, just be faithful, but pray and pray. Pray for November the 8th. Pray for our country. Pray for our leaders. Pray. So let's go to Acts. And I'm going to close it out today. Let's just cut back on some of this. I was going to say, it's just good to know we win. I'll tell you. It's good to know. So this, we're in Acts chapter 2, and we've been talking about the concept of awe. And awe is this understanding that we are gloriously overwhelmed and mesmerized by the mercy that's found in the living Christ. Listen to Acts chapter 2, verse 42 and following. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. And awe, awe came upon them, upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So, so they, 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 they lived in awe, and, and God gave them favor with the people. God gave them a worshiping spirit. God gave them unity as they lived in awe. And, and, and they, they lived in awe in part because they devoted themselves to four things. The apostles' doctrine, to fellowship, relationship, and to worship, and to prayer. And so you look at this text and you look at the sermon that Peter preached to Pentecost and you see that Peter's sermon was all about the glory of the resurrected, exalted Christ who's poured out the Holy Spirit upon his people. Let me read these verses, verse 24. He's all about the resurrection. You know, the Pentecost has come, people are proclaiming Jesus in known languages and it is a wild experience. And later 3,000 people would be believed and they would be baptized. It's just, just a wild experience. And Peter says this, verse 24, God raised Jesus up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He rose from the dead. Verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him, to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, speaking of David in Psalm 16, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. So the resurrection, the resurrection, the resurrection, the resurrection. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, he's ascended, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out the Holy Spirit upon us today, and you are seeing and hearing all of these things. So he's not only the resurrected, he's the exalted, he is the ascended, he's the one who's poured out the Holy Spirit. It's all about Jesus. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And when I asked you to preach that, the people were cut to the Spirit. 
And they cried out, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Well, I, I just want to take some, some time now and, and ask this. Uh, why did they devote themselves in the, in the text? Why did they devote themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to relationships, to worship, and to prayer? Devoted them, they devoted themselves because they were walking under the, the wonder and the joy and the glory and the mercy and the majesty of all that God is for us in Christ. They heard about the, the, the glorious reality of Christ and they said, you know, we've got to do these things because he's both Lord and Christ. And as the apostolic message is preached and gloried in and proclaimed, you, you see time after time the apostles making a beeline to the glory of the cross. Listen to Colossians chapter 1. In Colossians 1, this is what Paul says. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. With joy, give me thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And Paul's just saying, behold the glory and the wonder of Christ. The Father has qualified you. He's qualified you to be an inheritor of grace. He's delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the son he loves in whom there is forgiveness, the redemption of our sins. Behold the glory of Christ. And I think as, as, as I see the wonder of Christ, I want to devote myself to that which builds me up in the Lord. As I see the wonder and the majesty of Christ. Now next week I will not be here and I will miss uh, Reformation Sunday. So let me take a Reformation Sunday statement here. So the Reformation was started by a guy named Martin Luther who was a monk. And as Luther studied the Bible and, and pondered the scripture, he came to understand that, that we're saved by faith alone through the work of the reigning Christ alone. He'd been taught in his scholastic theology that, 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 that grace was gradually imparted or in or given to them through the sacramental work of the church. So you did certain things, and as you did certain things, God would give you a little bit more grace, and a little bit more grace, and a little bit more grace, and one day you'd make, get to the point where maybe you're in the club. And as, and as Luther read the scriptures, he came to understand that we're saved by faith alone, and this grace was imputed. And so he quit using the gradually given, to use a law term that says, you are declared righteous in the sight of God by the work of Christ alone. And Luther referred to that. It's a wonderful statement. He referred to that as the sweet exchange. Christ takes my sins upon himself at the cross, and he gives me his righteousness that's earned by his death on the cross for me. It's the sweet exchange. And, and Luther said, as he contemplated that, he thought he had entered the doors of paradise. Because he saw the mercy and the grandeur and the goodness of 
God expressed in Jesus. And later in his catechism, Luther wrote, we could never come to recognize the Father's favor and grace were not for the Lord Christ who is a mirror of the Father's heart. And, and, and so I say to myself as I look at this self, if, if you want to really have a balanced life that's centered on the glory of who God is in his Trinitarian glory, then you major on the wonder and goodness of Christ. If you want to be devoted to good Bible teaching and to good relationships and to worship and prayer, you major on and you understand the glory of Christ. And so Luther would write a woman with whom he had exchanged some letters named Barbara Liskirkin. He wrote this to her. He said that the highest of all God's commands is this, that we hold up before our eyes the image of his dear son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Every day he should be the excellent mirror wherein we behold how much God loves us and how well in his infinite goodness he has cared for us in that he gave his dear son for us. Contemplate Christ given for us, then God willing, you will feel better. And I, and I, I say, do you, if, if I contemplate the glory of Christ, it will go well with my soul. And, and so I read this passage and I, and I say, May we think much upon the reality of Christ. So they were devoted, number one, because they walked under the glorious reality of Christ. Number two, they devoted themselves to these things because they understood with a growing apprehension that God is gloriously for me. Uh, he is, as Paul says in Romans 8, if God is for us, then he who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all will not also along with him graciously give us all things. And, and so when these people saw that, that Christ was for us, that our joy and well-being and hope and the synergism of faith, hope, and love is, is met in Christ, they ran to the cross. They ran to Jesus. And, and see, when, when I see that God is for me in the person of Christ by the power of the Spirit, I want to devote myself to these issues, to these things. I want to know the word. I want to be with God's people. I want to worship. I want to be a man of thoughtful prayer. As I, as I understand these things, I was reading through Psalm 34 this week. And I thought, wow, this is, the psalmist said these things, dimly seeing the coming Messiah which is astounding to me. He says this, he says, I, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Verse 3, and just listen. I, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. God delivers us. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. You break out of the shame cycle as you look to the reigning God to forgive sins. This poor man called and the Lord heard him and saved him from all of his troubles. He saves us from our troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And Spurgeon preached a sermon on this. He just said this. He says, an outward seeking of the living God will make a man's life sublime. Sublime. Happy. God 
wants us to be people who reflect the joy of the Lord. I asked some people the other night, I said, is God a happy God? Come. You know, you ask a question like that and everybody looks at the floor like, well, the answer is yes. The answer is yes. He's the author of joy. The answer is God has always existed in the happy land of the Trinity and glorious relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Think about that. So there's a man named Algernon Swinburne, well-known author and poet, and, and he said this, he made this comment. He was a profligate man who later in his life was not as much so, but early in his life he was involved in all types of weird behavior. And so he wrote some poems that became very famous. Uh, but this is what he said about Christ. He was not a Christ follower. He said, thou hast conquered, O pale Galilean, the world has grown uh, gray from thy breath. Thou hast conquered, O pale Galilean, and the world has grown gray from thy breath. And I thought, huh, that's interesting. Now, do, do I believe that or, or do I believe Psalm 84 says, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. I, I'd rather be a doorkeeper than to dwell in the tents. But because the Lord God is a sun and a shield, the Lord God gives favor and he gives honor. No good thing to see withhold from those who walk uprightly. And, and listen, we need to vote for joy. I think one reason these people pursued the Lord is because they saw the glory and goodness of Christ. Do you taste it? The psalmist says here, oh, oh taste and see that the Lord is good. Another reason they devoted themselves to the Lord is because they had a, a personal relationship with the living God. Now, let, let me wave a little banner here and just say this. There is a difference between uh, having facts about Christ and following Christ fully. Uh, I, I sometimes catch myself thinking this way. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified. He rose victorious over death, and he ascended into heaven. Now, now that, that's important, it's important to know those things. But, but, but what, what I want to argue for here is that these people in Acts were bowled over by the fact that there is a personal God who loves them. And I ask myself, am I? Am I? Do I realize that Jesus walks among us this morning and he convicts or he comforts or he embraces or he prods, but he loves us and he cares for us and he, 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 or, or he disciplines? Do I, do I understand that? And there's a difference between just facts. I'm, I don't know if I can get this across. Between facts and understanding, there is a personal relationship with a living Christ who walks in my life with joy and conviction. There's a man named B.B. Warfield who was a great theologian at Princeton. And B.B. Warfield wrote about his, his volumes of theology. He, he, he said this in Studies of Theology, Volume 9. And I just went, yes. So think about the early church. He said, he said, he said we call faith trust. Trust is the active expression of that sense of dependence in which the Christian faith consists, trust. It raises them from a mere beliefs in propositions, 
It's more than just believing facts. It says faith that is the nature of trust to seek a personal object. And it is only natural, therefore, that we call the Christian faith, what we call the Christian faith does not reach its height in saying yes to propositions, but it comes when it rests with adoring trust on the person of Christ. He says that, that, that faith is trust that comes to rest in an adoring rest or trust on the person of Christ. Now, I read that and I thought, where is Christ changing me? Where is Christ changing my attitudes and my heart and my inclinations, the way I spend my time, my energy, and my money, and, and, my, my, and my passions? Where is Christ changing me? And he says later in the same book, he says, faith is the going out of the heart from itself and resting on God in confident trust for all that is good. So, so I want you to see this. These people devoted themselves to the things of God because they saw that God walked among them and he was glorious and he was good and he was changing them. I asked God, change me. Change me. It's just not believing propositions or theology. As important as that is and it's foundationally important. It's incredibly important. But it's relying upon, is looking to, is clinging to the living God in the person of Jesus. And then they devoted themselves, in the text, they devoted themselves because Peter had just cried out with all of his heart to them. He says, he kept warning them with many, many words, save yourselves, save yourselves from this perverse or crooked generation. And so they did that because they wanted to escape the corruption of a twisted generation that pulled them down. If, if you want to be saved from a crooked generation, a fallen world that wants to take your joy and your purpose and your hope and your dignity, then devote yourselves to the Scripture. Devote yourselves to being friends with people. Get in a community group. Devote yourselves to worship this Christ-centered and saturated and full of glory and devote yourself to being a person that prays because that, that will bring a semblance of, of, of balance and order and symmetry to your life. May God give us the grace to be people who are people of awe. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day and thank you for this passage in Acts, this historical narrative of the early church. God, we plead that we would see the goodness of Christ, and we plead that we would understand that knowing you, Jesus, is more than just knowing facts. Facts are important. Peter talks about repeatedly the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But I think you also are the exalted Christ, and you've poured out your Holy Spirit upon the church. I just thank you. I praise you. I pray, Lord, that we would be people who, as a body of believers, devote ourselves to being biblically minded and devote ourselves to having fellowship with people that build us up and strengthen us and devote ourselves to, to worship and to prayer. And as we do that, Lord, I pray to work in our lives. God, we, 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 we pray for you to make yourself manifest in our lives in a strong way. 
Oh God, use us in our community. Bless our nation. Bless your church worldwide. Make us people of, of resolve and commitment in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.